The Old Testament reading today is from Isaiah 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet until her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent, day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest, and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. Never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies, and never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have told, toiled. But, the, but those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Pass through, pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise a banner for the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see, your Savior comes. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. The grass withers and the flowers fall. I'm going to read two passages, from one from Acts and one from Luke. The Acts passage is Paul defending himself uh, in God's story in the presence of King Agrippa. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. The second passage is Jesus after his resurrection talking to his disciples. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Well, if you've been with us uh, for the last couple of weeks, we, we're in a three-part series on the purpose of our church. Uh, Eric has been asking the question each week, uh, when somebody says, so how's the church going? How do you know how to answer that? Um, how do you know what it means to be going well, to be doing well as a church? And so we're talking about that. We say that uh, we are a, a, a community of um, worship, nurture, and witness, that we worship the one true God, that, we, uh, that it's our calling, our vocation to give honor to him with all of our lives and our lips. And we're a community of nurture, that we care for one another, we reach out to one another, we bear each other's burdens. And this week, finally, we'll be talking about being a community of witness, which basically means I'm going to give you a whole lot more stuff to do to cram into your already crowded life. So let's pray. That was a joke. Well, we are going to pray. Father, thank you for, um, for your word that never goes out from you and returns to you empty. Thank you for your word that is all about proclaiming your son, his accomplishments on our behalf, and the extens- extending the blessings of forgiveness of sins to the Gentiles and to all the nations. We want to be partners with you in that. Amen. Uh, So before Rachel and I moved here uh, a little over four years ago with our family, before that we had lived in Boston and Philadelphia for a number of years. Um, When we were in Philadelphia, I was a youth pastor, a youth director, um, which meant I was only a little bit odd. Uh, But the question there, you know, when we run into people in Philadelphia who are not part of our church or not, you know, didn't have a lot of experience with the Christian tradition, they would like, uh, you know, come over and say, well, I was going to bring a bottle of wine, but I didn't know if you, you know, can you guys do that? You know, so their exposure to the church was basically like, if you wear a collar and you're a pastor, you get the wine. If you don't wear a collar... Probably not. Better, better safe to not bring any wine, which is a bummer. So no wine that night. But then we moved up to Boston, and uh, we, we were up there just for a year uh, to do a church planning apprenticeship to, to hopefully see a new church, a new worshiping community began, uh, begun in this uh, little town just south of Boston called Braintree. And the question there was, uh, was a little funnier, and it usually was directed to Rachel. So you guys have kids? Because if you're a pastor in Boston, the major exposure is Catholicism, where you do not get to be married, right? Do you know this? See, that's the opposite here. No, he's like, Catholic, what? Catholic. And so you, you don't, you're married to the church and you're celibate. And so they were shocked that we had kids and that I was a pastor, which I found hilarious. Um, the other thing that people said when they, you know, I kind of kept it secret that I was this pastor guy. Uh, and, but if they, you know, as, as, as relationship progressed with neighbors or whoever we were talking to them, we got to know them a little better. They'd find out why we were actually there to, to try and start a new church for the sake of this little town. And, uh, and typically the answer was something like this. Uh, well, count me out. I'm not the church going type. I think that's really telling. I'm not the church going type. 
So when they heard me say, we're going to begin a new church, what they actually heard was, we're going to start hanging out for an hour and a bit on Sunday mornings and doing this drama up here and singing songs you don't know and it doesn't apply to most people in the world. They thought that I was inviting them to participate in this like sit in the thing, kind of like a movie except pretty boring. Would you want to come to that? And they're like, no, I'm not the church-going type. I don't do that church thing. I don't show up at a place and waste an hour and a bit on Sunday mornings uh, to, to hang out and go over stuff that doesn't apply to me. I thought that was really interesting, that that was the idea of what it meant to go to church or to be part of a church. And so as Rachel and I really wrestled through, well, what does it mean to be the church. If it's not just showing up on a Sunday morning, what does it mean to be uh, who we are for the world? What is Jesus calling us to do, to be? And so, uh, so I was reminded uh, of studying the book of Ruth. And we got to preach through Ruth, and the women's Bible studies uh, studied the book of Ruth a couple of years ago, a year and a half maybe or so. Uh, it's a great book of the Bible. And this book, who Ruth is all about home, if you remember. The book starts and Naomi is, uh, is leaving God's land, leaving their home with her, her husband and her two boys. They're, coming, they're leaving home because there's a famine in the land. They live in Bethlehem, literally the house of bread, and there is no bread. So they have to leave. And, but while they're away, while they're out of God's land, all the dudes die. The dad and the two boys, they died, and Naomi is left with her daughters-in-law. And she thinks, well, I don't have any provision or relationships or any safety, right? None of the blessings of home here while I'm away. Maybe I'll go back home to Bethlehem where I can get some of those things. And one of the daughters-in-law, Orpah, says, fine, I'm out of here. But Ruth clings to her like a tick on a dog. Won't let go. Okay, fine, you can come with me, Ruth. So they go back to where they think is going to be home, but they show up and there's still, there's no work to do. They don't have a place. There's no provision. So they're back, but they're not home. You know, Naomi gets back and says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Lord, is, his hand has been against me and I'm bitter. So don't, uh, so, so she's back, but she's not home. She's still grieving. She's still not protected. She's still not provided for. As it turns out, uh, through the Lord's providence, uh, there's a, a man named Boaz who uh, allows Ruth to glean in, her field, in his fields, and he provides protection, and he provides sustenance and, 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 and uh, a welfare for Naomi and Ruth. So the blessings of home are beginning to arrive. And then eventually, um, as circumstances that have it, uh, Boaz marries Ruth and then they have a baby and in Hollywood that'd be the end of the story right married with a baby and you've just achieved everything you could ever hope for plus he's rich and probably good looking but not in the Bible because you know home is much deeper and better than that God's plan for his people is much bigger than that and so the Bible uh, so the passage excuse me the book ends with two things the first is the end of the narrative happens when the baby is taken and set on Naomi's knee and all the women sing over her and say, you are blessed. No longer Mara. 
You see, in Jewish law, that baby was Naomi's. The baby belonged to Naomi because the baby, that baby's job was to raise up, as the, the repeated phrase through the book, raise up the name of the dead man so that her husband and her sons wouldn't be finally fully all the way dead. But they could, they could, uh, the, their name would live on and they could claim their inheritance in the land, in God's special land. So they could have a home. They could provide for themselves. They could have a place. God's idea of home is much bigger. Um, And the second thing that happens at the very end of the book is a genealogy, which seems unexciting. But it's a genealogy that places this baby directly in the line of David, King David, who, uh, who as king purified God's land from all its enemies. So he made their land safe. And he centralized the worship of the living God in Jerusalem by bringing the tabernacle to Jerusalem. So he, he uh, brought worship into its right place. So David greatly furthered home for God's people. And so God, so the, this book is showing how this, even this little Naomi woman and this nobody outsider Gentile Ruth was part of God bringing about the blessings of home for his children. I think that captured us as we think about what the church is called to be. You see, that's been God's mission from the beginning. I'll make this super quick, but it psychs me, so I'm not going to skip it. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he makes the fish and the birds and all the stuff and all the plants, and then he makes people, right? And then, this is the question and answer part, What does he do with the people? This is an easy one. He puts them in the garden. The garden where they have sustenance, where they have a job, where they have deep relationship with each other, where they walk with God in the cool of the day. He gives them a perfect home. And then they rebel against God. They don't trust him. They don't believe him. And what is their punishment? They're kicked out of home they have to leave their home and they're in exile they're away from home that's the bad news that's the bad state to be away from home and then all these things happen Noah and the flood and then uh and and Cain and Abel but there's always this hope coming and then the the tower of Babel where all the people are gathered together but they're gathered for the wrong purpose they're gathered to make a name for themselves and God says this won't do I'm going to judge this situation I'm going to judge these people and split them up and send them all over the earth with different languages and as a reader of the Bible you're supposed to say oh man What's going to happen now? Because there's no but God. There's no, what, there's no solution for that at the end of chapter 11 until chapter 12 starts. And who, who comes on the scene? Abraham, say it louder. Abraham. Abraham comes. And Abraham then is set up as the way God will rescue all of, his, all of these nations. He's going to rescue them from this state of exile. And being away from home. And do you know how he starts the mission? Abraham, leave your home. Leave your home so that other people can have a home. He tells Abraham two things. Go and be a blessing. Through you all nations will be blessed. That is God's plan. 
That is the reason he's given us his word. That is the reason he's taken action in all of history is so that he could uh, send his people to go and be a blessing, to go and bring the outsiders home. So it carries on from there. God's people are in God's land, right? Joseph and, and, uh, and, and his brothers, but then they have to go to Egypt because there's a famine, they're enslaved. God brings them out of that slavery and into their home, into their right land. But they don't do well there, do they? They rebel against him. And then God, in judgment against the rebellion, makes them leave their home. He kicks them out again. He sends them into exile, away from home. But after 70 years, he brings them back. He brings them back and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so they get safety back. And then they lay the foundation of the temple and rebuild the temple and they, they're trying to put right worship in the middle of their home. But God doesn't return to his temple. Have you ever um, had a death in the family? And then you show up for the next holiday and that person isn't there? That's not really home. Right? It's not really right. Their absence is tangible. You're still at the place. You still do all the things. But somehow it's not right. It's not whole. And that's what Israel experienced during this time. God wasn't there. There was a hole where he should have been. Like Naomi, they were back, but not home. They hadn't gotten all the blessings that God had for them, all the fullness that he wanted to give them. And for a long time, he's silent and leaves them in that state. And other nations come in and, and, uh, and conquer them. And these wicked outsiders are ruling over God's special place and even desecrating his temple. It's bad stuff. Until we get to John chapter 1, and we're told the word was made flesh and the word dwelt among us. He pitched his tent among us. He made his home with us. But Jesus, in his mission to bring home to the world, to bring all those blessings of home, in his birth, in his very birth, he's got nowhere to stay. His parents, they can't even stay in a real bed. He's born in a stable because he has no home. And in his earthly ministry, he says that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And even in his crucifixion, the gospel writers make a point to tell us that he was crucified outside the city, that he was put into exile, that he was put away from the presence of God, the special place of God. He was kicked out of home so that you and I could be brought home. Because he promised us in John 14, this is the last thing he says to his disciples before he's going he's gonna to leave them. And he says to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, me and my Father, will come to him and make our home with him. He promises us that. That's what he's working towards all this time is to bring us home. And one day, 
when he returns and heaven and earth are united. And as Sam Gamgee says, all, bad th- all sad things come untrue. And God is finally fully with us and there is no evil. There's no nastiness left in the world. We will fully be home. But until then, in between his resurrection and his return, we're in the age of the church. We're in this in-between state where God says, my intention is to bring all nations home. And he's given that. He's given that mission to us. He hasn't given a mission to his church. He's given a church for his mission in the world. I didn't make that phrase up. This is a good one, though. In our New Testament passages, we have Jesus reporting the purpose of God's activity and the recording and interpreting of that activity in Scripture. We have Paul also saying, here's the whole point of everything I've been saying, and they both say that the Messiah would be proclaimed, that salvation would be, you know, that we would know who Jesus is, what he did. All Scriptures, that's all the Old Testament at that time that they, they were speaking this, are about Jesus and what he's going to accomplish and that forgiveness and rescue and salvation would be proclaimed to the nations. You, you can have a, uh, a biblical basis of marriage, right? How marriage should work because the Bible says so. But you can't say that all of the Bible is about marriage. But we oftentimes want to just create some kind of biblical basis for witness or for mission. When in fact, all of the Bible is about mission. About God's mission. That he's invited us into. It's all about Messiah and mission. And so now we're in the age of the church. And he's given to us, he's entrusted to us this mission to bring the nations home. To bring the outsiders in. To bring all the blessings of home, safety, belonging, protection, forgiveness. He's entrusted that to us. So what does it look like? What does it look like? Um, Rock Creek. Rock Creek, I've said before, and is, is a church of each other's couches. John Conrad, thank you. The only person to ever take up that name. And that's what I've, I've been saying it for years and I like it. So I'm going to keep saying it. We're a church of each other's couches, right? We're a church that, is, uh, that, that hangs out with each other in each other's homes. How are we bringing the blessings of home to our communities? If you want to continue to look for this gravitational pull of a time when Rock Creek will finally do what you know we need to do and create a water bottle with our name on it so that you can drink out of it while we do this major project that everybody in the church shows up to do and then high-fives each other and goes home. That's not what we're ever going to do. We're not doing that thing, okay? We're not making, we're, we're not doing this kind of come to us, draw everybody in thing. There's nothing wrong with that, but we won't, as a, we won't create a committee of missional living that then identifies the needs of our community and that says that if you want to be part of Rock Creek, you will join with this committee and do this work. That's not how we're going to do it. That's not obstinance. 
That's just not how God's called us to be in this world, as Rock Creek. We're a church of each other's couches, and as Marcus Holsey reminded me, man, you need to say a church of each other's refrigerators, because that's when you really know that you know somebody, when you can go in the refrigerator and just open it up and you don't even ask. One time I was saving a really special beer and I had to tell Marcus he couldn't have it when he was in my refrigerator. (laughs) I think it hurt his feelings. (laughs) All right, extra points for uh, history majors here or history buffs. What government did this nation have from 1781 to 1787? This is after the revolution. I'll give you a hint, it's before the federal system that we have now, before the, pre, before the three-branch thing. Anybody remember? In the middle there, we toyed around with it. Didn't work out real well, but this beside. You know it, Kaylor? Excellent. Yeah, Ar- the Articles of Confederation. Very good, Kaylor. Nobody knew it at Lula, and nobody else here knew it, or was too afraid to speak up. The Articles of Confederation were basically, we had just, the states had all gotten together and fought this big war, and then they said, you know what, we want nothing to do with the king who's going to lord it over us ever again. We don't want big, strong, central power. And so, uh, so folks got together and created the Articles of Confederation, which was essentially the, 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 the weakest central governing authority possible in order to still help the states thrive. They wanted to make the central thing as small as possible while still accomplishing the purpose of all the states doing really well and doing well with what they should be doing and having commerce between them. They wanted to to keep that going. All right, Rock Creek, Articles of Confederation, okay? We don't want to be, nobody wants to be a king here. That's not how we're going to carry out this mission of bringing the nations home. When, we th- when you think of Rock Creek, I want you to think of a bunch of little states. The state of uh, the small group that meets out here south of Hinkle. The state of the St. Elmo small group. The state of the Good News Bible Club that, that, uh, that meets on Wednesday mornings at Fairland School. The state of the, um, uh, the food bank on West Brow on, on the first Friday of the month. Uh, the state of, uh, of a small group of men, the state of a small group of women gathering, even the state of a book club. These are all the little states that make up Rock Creek. These are the ways that we're inviting each other and the nations into our homes and into our lives. And the role of this church, the role of this church is to strengthen those states. Last year, was that, it was about a year ago or so, maybe less than that, where Eric made a list of all the, the gatherings that he could think of that were associated with our church. Do you all remember that? And he listed them all off, a bunch that I just did, and, and, and then a, a bunch more. Do you all remember that, yes or no? Some of you guys. So he listed them all. This is my favorite response. Why does he get to list my group? That's not even a Rock Creek group. Rock Creek's never done anything for that group. And I want to say, exactly. That is beautiful. That's exactly what we are going for. 
Because you know what? We don't want to control everything that you do. We don't want you to have to, to run it by every, everybody before you gather some believers and say, I found a need in our community, and there's these other people that we can invite into that. Somebody asked me a little while ago, what does success for Rock Creek look like in 10 years? And I said, a bunch more of these little groups. Gathering together, loving each other, and doing, some, doing something that's fitting to them. That is success. I love it. Success is what we saw in our special announcement today from the Conrads. They, uh, they got excited about something and they're inviting the church into it. They're, they put an open invitation to come to their home right before they have 50 some odd college students arriving too. You don't have to be that crazy. We love you, Conrads. But I do love the boldness of that and the courage that it takes and the faith that it says we're going to throw it out there and come on. If you want to hit your wagon, let's go. That's success to me. When we think about witness at Rock Creek. More little clusters of people loving each other and serving in some way that fits. I live next door to Jameson Griffin, who has all the tools, and I don't have all the tools. And so I borrow the tools from Jameson pretty frequently. And one of them is a seed spreader. It's like kind of that bucket on the front. You know, you dump a big bunch of seed, a big bag of seed in there, and you spread it all over your lawn because it's got a little hole in the bottom and this little wheel that's spinning, right? As you push it, that wheel starts to spin and the hole opens up so the seed drops onto it and it's flung out. I think that's a great way to think about what your church means. That we're trying, we would love for you through prayer emails, through services of worship, through equipping you and encouraging you and through your small groups to, to present to you, to, uh, for you to, have, to know a Jesus who is so big that he pushes that seed spreader and those seeds go flinging out. And the faster you've ever gone too fast with one of those and you start running with it and the seeds go everywhere, or if you stop to just like a little bit of pace, they they don't even really make it out. They stop dropping because the wheel's not turning enough. But we want to present to you a Jesus who is so big and powerful that he flings you out into risk and faith. And where you land is up to him. Okay. Real quick, here's a couple dangers we avoid in doing it this way that I like. The first one is uh, a danger of regular people not counting. You see, if we came, if we did this like whole church, we're going to put our name on a water bottle and a t-shirt thing, and then we're going to do this big thing that we're all doing together, then all of a sudden it means, it can mean, that what you were doing before doesn't count. And now all that matters is what you can do with this gigantic group and effort. And so if you were reaching out to your neighbor before, if you had noticed a neighbor in need before, that that doesn't matter as much because you got to get on board with the thing that the church is doing. This way really affirms you noticing the community in which God has put you. There's a... um, a family in our church who noticed the family across the street from them, that their grass was getting longer, that their, their children were coming over more often for snacks and, try and, 
inviting themselves for, to stay for meals. And they did a little investigation, talked to the mother of the children. It turns out that the mother and father had split. The father is away, not supporting. And, and the, the family is really falling into desperation financially. So this family, our family across the street, starts mowing their lawn, starts inviting them over for meals more often, um, starts, starts picking up things at the grocery farm, and eventually reaches out to uh, our, the church and says, hey, we need, can we help them? A leader from our church met with them. They were partnering with this family already on the ground, loving the family and saying, we're going to boost what you're doing. Yeah, we've got resources. Yes, we've got some help, some wisdom for how to do this well. We've got some partnership for when you get tired. That's success. That's bringing the nations home. The second one, I'm going to skip. So Rachel and I, as we started seeing, uh, seeing this vision for the church, that the church is about the mission of, of welcoming the nations home, not just a service that you do on a Sunday morning, that most people are passive and sitting, and then the, the, the performers are up here putting on a show. Um, we moved our three small children to join a, a church planning network there in Boston and start work, start getting to know each other, uh, know neighbors in this town of Braintree. And the, and the major blessing that God gave us in that move was the McHugh family. And they had been there, their mature family had been there for years, praying for their neighborhood, reaching out to their neighbors, and they were longing for partnership in this purpose of bringing the nations home, bringing outsiders in to the blessings of Christ. And so as we got there, uh, we became very close with them very quickly. Do you know why? Because we needed each other. We were, on the same, we were going the same way, and we couldn't do it alone. I think sometimes we think that we got to get community right before we go into mission or that we need friends before we can really start to do anything. What I want to point out in that is that you cannot be a community of witness without being a community of nurture. We're not going to be able to fulfill our calling unless we're doing it together. And we have no desire to fill our, our calling in that unless we're a community of worship who's remembering this is the God who's brought me in from the outside, who's rescued me, who's brought me this, uh, the blessings of home. As we worship, we find our calling to, to witness and we rely on each other and nurture our community of witness together. I'm going to ask you two questions. This is the last thing. Two questions as we go from here. The first one is what, and the second one is who. What? What does Jesus see when he looks at this place? What does Jesus see when he looks at this place? And what I mean by place is wherever he's put you. In your work, in your neighborhood, at your school. In some kind of network of relationships. In your family. What does Jesus see when he looks at this place? As you pray about that, as you consider that, he'll raise your, your mind, your heart, beauties and glories that he has put there by his common grace. And he'll also raise to your awareness areas of need. What does Jesus see when he looks at this place? 
And as he moves you to want to act, to want to give, to want to welcome the outsiders into a home, there's the second question is who? Who is already doing that? And who could do it with me? You know one fun part about Christianity is you get to hang out with people you like. So whenever I see a need, there's, as happens to me from time to time, oh, there's this family that needs their roof replaced. And then I think, you know who I like? I like Mark Richmond. I'm going to call him and we're going to go do that together. I like Clint Ball. We're going to hitch up this dude's trailer and take it to his house. You get to hang out with people you like. You get to do things that you, that you want to do with people you like. Who's already doing it as a partnership? Is somebody already engaged in that? Go jump in with them. Don't, don't recreate the wheel. And who could I do it with is, who do you want to hang out with? Who do you want to be friends with? Who do you want to grow closer with? Who's got resources that would help with this? So what does Jesus see when he looks at this place and who could do it with me? Father, propel us into action. I know that as uh, I say these things and, uh, and many of us hear them, that we're thinking, how could we possibly add one more thing? Lord, I pray that you would knit into our lives people who need to be invited home. Give us awareness. Let us raise our heads and see this world as you see it, Jesus. Would you welcome home many of your children through Rock Creek Fellowship, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing Jesus.